0: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan pause their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton to welcome a special guest, hip hop writer, Steve Jewin. Together, they take a look at the documentary Founding Fathers of Hip Hop, which fills in some important gaps in the story. Namely, what were straight black DJs doing in the outer boroughs of New York City during the early days of disco and hip-hop? Email us at podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host Nate Wilcox and I'm joined by Ryan Harkness. It's another techno roll episode where we're diving into the history of DJ music with my cohort, Ryan Harkness. And today we've got a special guest. Steve, I should have asked you how to pronounce your last name before you came on.
2: <laughs> well, everybody pronounces it differently, but Juin is the one I accept.
1: Excellent. So Steve Juwan, who is a bit of an Internet authority on hip hop. You want to give a quick summary of your CV?
2: I don't know if I consider myself an authority, but some people would say I had the first electronic hip-hop newsletter. It was called Hardcore, with Core standing for Committee of Rap Excellence, and I'm also the founder of OHHLA, the original Hip-Hop Lyrics Archive. Currently, I run a site called RapReviews.com, which for over 20 years has been publishing Rap Reviews.
1: Here you go. And we're going to go way back. This, this time we've been talking about um, every episode so far in the series has been based off of Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton's Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey. But this time we found a chapter that they left out. And I mean, it's a five, six hundred page tome, so I don't blame them for cutting this chapter. But I think this is a key part of the history. And we're, we're working off of a documentary um, called Founding Fathers, The Untold Story of Hip Hop. Let me pull up the director here.
2: Yeah.
3: Available on uh, YouTube for free for anybody to watch
2: it. Yes. And narrated by the legendary Chuck D.
1: Excellent to mention. And directed by Hassan Poré and Ron Lawrence. And the book, I mean, the movie basically makes the argument that a, a very neat beginning for hip-hop, starting with DJ Cool Herc in the Bronx in 1973 and then going into Africa Bambada and Grandmaster Flash, is missing a big chunk of the story. And I think you can quibble with whether or not hip hop started with Cool Herc, but I definitely think that this set of DJs deserved to be mentioned, deserves to have dedicated time when you talk about the history of DJs. This is essentially the black straight disco DJs who were pioneering the form, mostly in the outer boroughs in Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, Harlem. Harlem, obviously not an outer borough, but but not in downtown Manhattan. Um, at the same time as the the white, uh, and, I mean some of the DJs we want to talk about are black, but but the audience was largely white or mixed and heavily gay. This is more the straight black uh, disco community, and a lot of these guys, in particular um, Pete DJ Jones and Grandmaster Flowers, were pioneering techniques of blending and beat matching at the same time as Francis Grasso and David Mancuso and other DJs we've talked about. Plus they're direct antecedents for the hip hop guys. Grandmaster Flash got his name Grandmaster from Grandmaster Flowers and he served as an apprentice for Pete DJ Jones. So, you know, there's definitely a case for these guys being the beginning of hip hop. And I think DJ Hollywood, who was primarily, well, he, he did club DJ stuff too, but he, he was, he was a radio style DJ in a lot of ways. Um, he in particular has a strong claim to being one of the founding fathers of rap because Melly Mel and and members of the Treacherous Three and so many of that first generation of rappers got their whole gig, their cadence, their bit from DJ Hollywood. So, Steve, where do you draw the beginning of hip-hop?
2: I think you just made the argument for me that I would have made because the call and responses that DJ Hollywood made a part of the hip hop lexicon, the whole throw your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care. That is what early MCs copied their style from was that very formation of talking over the tracks and being A MC who rhymes his phrases in a way to engage the audience that was listening to the mix they were playing DJ Hollywood and uh, Frankie Crocker and a lot of those DJs and radio personalities were very much rapping even if they don't get the credit for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Frankie uh, Crocker was on WBLS. He was a big time radio DJ, a massive factor in the history of music, just from the R&B records he was breaking and the pop records too. But his cadence on the air, direct influence on DJ Hollywood, who's a direct influence and everybody heard Frankie Crocker. So Frankie Crocker is absolutely a direct influence on everybody from that seventies uh, and early eighties generation. Um and the movie, the movie comes out basically and makes that argument, but let's get the counter argument. And I think the argument for Cool Herc doing something distinctive that becomes known as hip hop is that he was focusing on just the break beats. He was the first guy supposedly to be dropping the needle on just those drum breaks and mixing the two drum breaks back and forth so you'd have nothing but drum breaks so, so B-Boys could break dance too. And that is something that DJ Hollywood was not doing. And DJ Hollywood was also avowedly anti-hip-hop when it started out. His audience was a little older. They were dressed to the nines. They were doing the hustle. They were couples. They were looking to party and get laid and have a good time. They did not want a bunch of teenage b-boys from the Bronx coming in and ruin their thing. Although... He did play it at, at uh Disco Fever, uh, you know, had a, a whole dedicated night there. And so he was playing to the same crowds and and obviously was popular with him. But the break beats and then the stuff that Grandmaster Flash was doing with the scratching and the beat matching. Grandmaster Flash basically got that stuff from from Pete DJ Jones. So it's it's the combination of the breakbeats and the the DJ techniques, I think, that creates modern hip hop. And then Africa bambata formalizes it into a cultural a culture with an ethos. But as DJ Hollywood says, you know, you can have your, your tagging, you can have your dancing, you can even have your DJs. But if you don't have your MC, hip hop does not conquer the world.
3: Like, there can we there argue? seems to be a a line uh, that's drawn, basically from from when it's disco to when all of a sudden everybody starts taking that break and starts mixing the break over and over again and i can i can understand why people want to draw that line uh because i mean when you're trying to figure out the start of hip hop are you, are you trying to figure out where influences of what becomes <laughs> hip hop are are happening on top of disco and do you really want all the baggage that disco comes with so i mean from uh when you're when you're looking at it on, on in a history perspective i don't blame anybody for for basically drawing the line and saying it was when it was when the break mix started happening and we got rid of all the disco and all the funk and everything else like that that it became this new Thing. You see that in every single other genre uh, and you'll have arguments in every single other genre. If you, if you try to, you know, talk to somebody about techno and, and tell them that they owe disco to everything. Or if you, if you talk to somebody who's into industrial and tell them that that's from Belgian new beat, which is from high energy, which is, you know, about the most outrageous, ridiculous music you can get. Everybody's going to be upset. I feel like it was the same thing like this founding fathers of, of hip hop documentary, the entire thing is almost two hours long, and I swear it's all disco. It's all disco music. So, I I, I feel like this is you know you're talking about the fathers of hip hop. These guys are the grandfathers. This is this is one step back. This is uh, what was turning into hip hop. And uh, you know I, I can understand you got to pay respect to all of that, but you also got to draw a line somewhere as well.
1: Uh, uh, one thing Steve real quick and then I'll let you jump in. I think that's very valid but remember the very first hip-hop record or rap records, Sugar Hill Gangs, Rapper's Delight is a live band playing a, playing a disco song they're covering chic's good times. So to the fan who's hearing this, there's nothing to distinguish that from DJ Hollywood. So Steve,
2: that's actually what I was going to say. You beat me to the punch. I was going to say <laughs> this line between disco and hip hop that people want to create doesn't really exist. The same records that they were dancing to in the clubs were the same records that the first MCs were rapping over. So I I do take exception when people say disco isn't hip hop and they try to put it in this whole different category. Like oh that's just something they were doing at Studio 54 and in Saturday Night Fever. No 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 disco and funk and r&b all of those things are what coalesce into hip hop they're not distinct from each other
1: however people at the time knew there was a difference they had different crowds people who were hearing it i mean dj hollywood's on the record multiple times trashing the early hip hop guys because mm-hmm. he he saw it as something different i mean and, they, yet, you know, and
2: yet sorry to jump in but if you i'm reading the book at the same time we're talking about this documentary and if you look at the crossover audiences there were a lot of punk kids who were hanging out with hip hop kids and there were a lot of disco kids who were hanging out with the rap fans it's it's not like they were distinct audiences they were willing to dance to each other's music even if sometimes the b boys were standing there with their arms folded run DMC style waiting for the breaks it's not like they were exclusively not going to the same clubs they was crossover all along
1: that's very true. And like our own Eugene S. Robinson, who's frequently, I guess, especially on our Hip Hop Evolution series, you know, this is a guy who was in Brooklyn at the time, primarily a punk rocker, but he was giving dance lessons at Studio 54 and was very aware of hip hop and was listening to hip hop on cassette tapes. Wasn't willing to go to the Bronx yet, (laughs) waited until they came downtown to check it out. But anyway, so, yeah, this is this is all uh, complicated stuff. But let's go back way back. And here's something that's frequently cited as an early appearance of rap on record. And this is from the Jubilaires, The Preacher and the Bear from the 1940s. This is a gospel group laying down some rap. Just come on, brothers, if you want to hear a story about that preacher and the bear. Gather round, boys, and don't want you to
4: miss none of this here story, because it goes like this. A preacher, he went out to hunt. It was on one Sunday morning. Though he was one Christian young man, but he took his gun along. Well, the first thing he shot was a bunch of fine quails, and he shot him a nice fat hare.
1: Then through the woods on his way back home, he met a great big grizzly bear.
4: Then the Revan fell down and upon his
1: knee. And that's the jubilaires and the Preacher and the Bear. And, you know, there's whole books written about the, the way deep prehistory of rap, alleged walls of the dozens, is particularly recommended. But, I, I mean, I think you've got to admit that Rap goes back to the first time an African was dragged to America and forced to speak English. Uh, it, it, it is something with absolutely deep, deep, deep roots in African-American culture. And um, it wasn't, I think that the magic, one of the magic of hip hop is that it took this form that had never really been formalized. You know, and people talked about, did it on the cor- street corners. They would do it on records. Louis Armstrong would scat sing in the middle of his jazz records. DJs were doing it all the time, but it wasn't seen as music necessarily. It was just something people did. Pygmy Markham did it, but he was a vaudeville blackface minstrel performer and a comedian. So it wasn't something that was taken seriously as musical and poetic creation really until you know, Melly Mel and The Message and so on and so forth. But let's dive in to the actual subject matter of the movie a little bit. And One of the first DJs they zero in on is is Grandmaster Flowers, Jonathan Cameron Flowers, uh, 1954 to 1992. Started DJing in 1967 as a teen, worked all the way through the late 70s. He was known as the mixologist. Uh, He would play the parks, one of the first people to set up sound systems in the parks. And and that's really one of the dividing lines here is is when the technology came forward, DJ sound systems to be able to compete with bands. That's when the history of DJ based music really takes off. And DJ Flowers was out there in the parks competing with West African steel drum bands or West Indian, sorry. And um, you know, playing at Reese Park and Reese Park Beach and you know, having a massive impact. And he's also significant as a disco DJ, because he's the guy who broke Soul Makasa, allegedly, which is a song, you know, African pop song that became an American hit after it was introduced to the discos and it started uh with DJ Grandmaster Flowers. Thoughts on Grandmaster Flowers, Steve?
2: I would say that when you try to pin the foundation of hip-hop on Cool DJ Herc, and he definitely deserves that respect, but one of the arguments that always gets made in his favor is that he comes from... Jamaican roots, and he grew up with the Jamaican sound clash, and yet we're talking about Grandmaster Flowers doing that very thing before cool DJ Herc was even on the scene. He was setting up those sound systems just like a Jamaican sound clash, and he may not have had that same heritage coming from Jamaica, but he's very much in that tradition.
1: Absolutely, and I I think, again, Herc's contribution is the focus on the breakbeats, which to my knowledge, uh, Grandmaster Flowers didn't do. But I think another reason we're doing this episode is because Grandmaster Flowers and DJ Pete Jones in particular, both of whom are mentioned in the book, but I really feel like a, a whole chapter was merited because these guys were doing the same stuff as Francis Grasso and David Mancuso at The Loft and and, and the other DJs that are so heralded. So I think they should really get credit for being on the first wave of disco DJs as well as... uh, These guys are kind of double-ropped. They're they're undercredited for their role in developing disco, and they're undercredited for their role in influencing hip-hop. So,
2: yeah, and... and Go ahead. If if I may, I also think that when you talk about the tradition of toasting in Jamaican music, when these DJs who were actually MCs would battle each other at the Sound Clash, they actually set the same precedent when these DJs in the five boroughs would battle each other, because if they were busy mixing the records, they would need somebody to toast for them. So they were either battling each other by making verbal insults and rhyming, or they had somebody out front doing it for them while they were playing the records. So the antecedents were there before Herc.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and this is something where the black disco, I think forks away from the downtown disco where the MC becomes a prominent voice in a way that they weren't as prominent at the loft and and the other downtown discos. Do you think that's a fair statement, Steve?
2: Absolutely, yeah. You didn't necessarily have Frankie Mancuso telling people throw your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care.
3: <laughs> I think David Mancuso, if you tried to speak over the record, would throw you out of the club. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Definitely later on in his, in his career. So, so they they cover Grandmaster Flowers, who obviously uh, was dead in 1992 before they made the documentary. Yeah. So they go to they go to Queens and they're talking about the New Sounds crew from East Hel- Elmhurst, started up in 1972, Ricky. Grant and his brother, Um, they were known for their fluid mixes. They were early into playing in clubs, Uh, the Bootyland Club in Queens in particular. They had uh, JD and Greg Love as MCs, and they built their own speakers. They were famous for these massive, massive speakers called the earthquake speakers, which they modeled on speakers that were rolled out to movie theaters for this movie earthquake in the 70s there was this phenomenon of disaster movies like the towering inferno and airport and other things and earthquake was one of these i don't think it was a particularly successful one but the gimmick with earthquake was that the sound system was so loud you could feel uh the theater shaking when the the earthquake happened and these guys saw this movie and went out and built their own earthquake speakers and you know over five thousand watts of powers um just amazing. And the show and the documentary, I mean, these things are ginormous, ginormous speakers. And so they were really bringing in the sound. And I get the feeling, my guess is, just based on the sociology of the region, that the DJs in the Bronx had a lot less money and and way inferior equipment to what the DJs in Queens and uh, Brooklyn had. And they talk about that in this movie, that the sound system competition was really between the, the crews in Queens and the crews in Brooklyn. And I just have to assume they had a little bit more money. And, and we'll talk about some of them, like um, Infinity, that definitely had some daddy's money come into play. But New Sounds um, also was known for, for uh, using the Sony MX-14 and, and did some, some rigging on their own so that they could control the volume from, from the turntable for each channel. And this inspired the GLI 3800. Uh, engineers saw what Ricky Grant were doing and, and built it and
3: you know um, took it commercial. But these guys are technical innovators. A lot it, of these it, guys are, are getting in there and, and creating their own rigs because none of the mixers back then had cues unless you were, unless you had somebody building a mixer for you inside of a club, then you were basically stuck without uh, a lot of tools. And these guys were were taking these things apart and rewiring them and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And those ended up being cooked into the next generation of mixers, that GLI 3800. They said that basically, uh, like everybody kind of credits Ricky Grant and his brother for for cr- for creating the blueprint for the GLI 3800 which is the first mobile DJ mixer with a horizontal fader so obviously that's that horizontal fader is one of the biggest uh, innovative points in 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 mixer evolution and uh, that was uh, very much pushed by the DJs themselves in a DIY sense uh, and it probably wouldn't have happened if you didn't have guys that didn't have the that that were just going and buying things off the shelf and leaving a as is. they They had to go and they had to, you know they had to invent the slip mat because they were using crappy turntables that uh, mm-hmm. didn't have the <laughs> torque to pick back up. They had to create their own cue systems that all of a sudden these guys realized, okay, we got to put this into the next mixer. so
1: absolutely and let's hear a little bit of new sounds this is new sounds live at st gabriel's this is from 1977 but they were obviously in the scene way before this and they're rapping over t connections do what you want to do oh.
4: standing on the verge of getting it all no stop rapping fine let's go all night though. going good and going strong all the freaks in here, throw your hands up in the air if you've got the desire to go one step higher, come along with us, New York. We're gonna set your natural body on fire. Hard oh, workout, y'all, oh, workout. Put a hard in your practice, shake your
1: sacker really. And that was New Sounds Live, at Saint Gabriel's in 1977, rapping over T connections. Do what you want to do. So yeah, you can hear this stuff, and it's definitely a hybrid i mean this is this makes me think of the feathered dinosaur you know the 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 first bird archaeopteryx or whatever this this is something where it's audibly disco but it's somebody rapping over it and it's very very close to hip hop but I, I don't know to me it's like not quite
3: hip hop to my ears everything kind of slides in and out of uh like when 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 a lot of these guys are crediting uh, radio DJs and and their style of speech and everything like that, it all kind of s- slips in and out of of that that stereotypical radio DJ voice and speech pattern into a little bit of rapping, into a little bit of rhyming, in and out onto the beat and off the beat. It's uh it's really cool to hear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fascinating stuff, and um and you can just. You can just tell that these parties had it going on. I mean, people were pa- – floors were packed. People were dancing. It's it's rocking and rolling. And then they segue into the next guy they talk about is uh, Donnie Dancemaster from Queens, DJ Donnie Lawrence. And this was another guy who clearly had resources. He had a Richard Long sound system. Richard Long, we've talked about in other episodes. He's the guy who built the loft of the, the custom system for the loft later built the studio 54 system. So if, you know, if Donnie dance masters hooking up with Richard long and getting him to build the first coffin, the first mobile system um, that's, that's a serious investment. So the dude, the dude had some serious resources. He played at DJ at, he was a guest DJ at studio 54. He also played at the paradise garage and regimes and was in the record pool, um, had the GI GLI mixing system. So, Very technologically advanced, and to me, more of a made man in the disco mafia than a hip hop (laughs) figure.
2: Well, and that's where I wanted to bring up the point when, once again, you hear people try to segregate disco from hip-hop, and yet you talked about the importance of having mixers and faders and how the early pioneering hip-hop DJs had to build these things, had to hand wire these things because they weren't even being produced yet. It was all because they wanted to control the crowd. And these disco DJs like David Mancuso, that was their whole MO. And if you read it in the book, They talk about the exact same thing. We wanted to bring the crowd up. We wanted to bring the crowd down. We wanted to extend the song. We wanted to switch the beat from one song to the other and and make them explode in a furious orgy. So it's not really that much different. Even when you try to segregate it, it's just the technology changed and the style changed.
1: Yes, I think that's a pretty good assessment. And Ryan, do you want to tell us a little bit about The Coffin?
3: Yeah, well, basically, uh, a coffin is uh, as bare as scent is a a case with two turntables and a mixer, all sitting in it, and you can slap it down, it kind of looks like like a a nice big guitar case. So you can actually carry that thing around and move it around. And obviously, for mobile DJs, uh, it doesn't get better than 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 having a, well, I mean, okay, it does get better than having a coffin. If you just show up and the sound system is there for you, I I won't get into the snobbery of of DJs who think they're better than mobile DJs because they don't have to haul their own gear around. But Uh uh, I I imagine back in the, back in the, in the mid seventies and stuff like that, you had a coffin. I mean, these guys with mobile sound systems, they, you know, they brought the party and they, you know, uh, it's no surprise that the DJ had the system and the DJ ran the system and the DJ was the star of the system that he owned uh because without the system who were you you know like uh, if you didn't have a system you were nobody so these guys being able to take these and uh you know bring them into the house and keep them safe or bring them out to the park and hook them up to the uh, street lights uh Powerful you know streetlight made the place dark <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely and and yeah they're gonna we're gonna talk about king charles who's a, a, a dj's more of a sound system entrepreneur who couldn't cut to save his life. And so it was, you know, as, as kid who kid in play says in the movie, um, the guy who could marshal those forces of the system were in a dominant position, even over the guy who was running the turntables or the guys on the microphone. So, um, and I don't think we have a word to distinguish the owner of the sound system from a DJ, but so they all get conflated in there. And the next the next guy they talk about, they zero in on Pete D.J. Jones, that we've already mentioned, who um, actually had Grandmaster Flash as an apprentice for a brief period. And I was kind of disappointed they didn't have Grandmaster Flash in the movie. I, I, I guess it's easy to speculate on the politics of that. I feel but,
3: like know. maybe it was they felt like he, he had gotten a lot – already he was get he was the one that was getting all the attention and then you had a lot of people in there that seemed really sour on him because Grandmaster Flowers never gets any respect and uh, straight up I think three or four times in in the video you have somebody saying I'll give you the respect you deserve for for what you did but there's only one Grandmaster and it's Grandmaster Flowers and you feel like there's some salt there just uh, based on the fact that you know Grandmaster Flowers never really got his due and died one of those tragic tales where where he died broke and alone and homeless and a drug addicted and it's just uh, it's it's terrible to to see when when you got two two different guys that were obviously uh, so important and one ends up just down and forgotten and the other one ends up revered. I can understand why you know you only want to focus on the guy who's being overlooked.
2: But it definitely yes. gives off the impression of the old cliche, history is written by the winners. You get the feeling that they're salty because history was written, oh, it was cool DJ Herc and it was Grandmaster Flash and it was Sugar Hill Gang. It's like, no, 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 no. They're, they are definitely throwing enough salt around to factor into a whole lace factory of potato chips.
1: <laughs> that's absolutely true and you can definitely understand it but fortunately pete tj jones is still with us or at least was at the time of the making of the documentary and you know has some great s- stories he's he's reading the grooves with the flashlight he didn't have a queuing system so he's he's Actually, eyeballing the records to see where the break was. He admits he couldn't hit it on the beat necessarily. And he also says scratching was invented because we were trying to fix our cues. You know, when he, he didn't have a cueing system, no, you just had to put your hand on the record and, and manipulate it like that. But
2: yeah, I don't it think was, it, it was the live juggling of the records that invented the scratching as we know it. And I think that's the other thing they're salty about is that Grandmaster Flash gets credited with the scratch. And even Flash will admit that Grand Wizard Theodore and Grand or DST were doing things that he wasn't doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I but I don't think anybody's claiming that Pete DJ Jones turned it into a percussion instrument. It was just no. it was just a sound that he got while he was, he was trying to do something else. So again, I think I think the the distinction is that Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash and, and Bambada formalized it and and and
2: branded like commercialized it. it.
1: Absolutely. And commercialized it. They they turned it into something that at least perceived appeared to be new. But well, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about some more of these early undersung DJs. And so, yeah, so Pete DJ Jones is right up there with Grandmaster Flowers. He's one of the two of these guys that are in the movie that are also mentioned in the last night of, a DJ saved my life book. And, you know, he starts out with little Bose speakers, which like Bose today still pack a big punch, but nothing compared to like the earthquake uh set up that the, the new sounds would have later. But he also played with the Echoplex early on. And he was a cross-borough guy. He was playing clubs in Harlem, in the Bronx, in Midtown and Uptown. So he was getting around and spreading the word and, and spreading the sound. And there's some guys that they mention as his rivals in 1972 that they don't mention anywhere else in the movie, Plummer, DJ Maboya, and the Smith brothers. So I'm kind of curious about those guys and what their story was, but um, I'll have to to look into that. And and DJ Jones is somebody who was, you know, winning major awards from corporations uh, as DJ of the year, 1972, 1973, but was totally burnt out by 1976. So I think that's probably another factor in his not being heralded is, you know, you burn out at the wrong time, and and you don't get the the big shine. Something similar happened to Cool Herc, where he you know gets stabbed in the hand, I think in '78 or so, and pulls back, and so he misses out that whole recorded era of hip hop that comes in the late '70s and early '80s. And then they move on to King Charles, who's another guy from Queens. He's a Jamaican like Cool Herc. Uh, I think he was older even than Cool Herc when he came. Acquires a sound system in the late '60s, a powerhouse system, and he's never claimed to be a great man on the turntable. So he hired young DJs to do that. But he was one of the first guys to have Crown amps, Macintosh amps, and brought that super deep bass. He was an acolyte of King Tubby, the Jamaican sound system king. And um, according to him, was getting over with with some Jamaican music, which everything else I've heard was that New Yorkers did not want to hear Jamaican music. Steve, do you know anything about this? <laughs>
2: Um, My perception is basically the same as yours was that the Jamaican reggae music was not very popular at the time and had a limited following. And when they would play those records, the dancers would say, no, I want to hear those R&B grooves. I want to hear that that disco sound. I don't want to hear this reggae stuff. I don't understand this reggae stuff.
1: Yeah, so you know, we weren't there, so we can't say for sure. Um, no, of and, course. And and but yeah, that's that seems to be the consensus is that the Jamaican stuff was very alien uh, to the New Yorkers, and also there's a there's friction still to this day between you know American descendants of slaves and and West Africans who've come in. Of course, West Africans, uh, not West Africans, West Indians. They also are descendants of slaves, so. You know, then you add immigrants from like Nigeria or Kenya who are not descendants of slaves and you get an even more complicated mix. So this stuff is fractal. The deeper you look, the more complicated it gets. Um, and so there's always going to be intragroup tensions uh, and people draw the distinctions that to people outside these groups aren't apparent.
3: And but like you know. uh, the difference between the, the boroughs, I was really surprised at how much of a big deal there was that it was Grandmaster Flowers in Brooklyn. And this is the guy from Queens and this is the guys from the Bronx. And it, the Bronx gets all the shine in history. And 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 again, from that uh, from this documentary, you can tell that all the other boroughs are pissed off about it because oh. uh, they are overlooked.
2: Yeah, they're salty as hell and, and probably deservedly so, because, uh, you, you know, it. When I hear South Bronx, South South Bronx, and I hear krs One basically rewriting history with that song, I never even realized at the time that there was a deeper story. When I heard that record in the '80s, I, I thought that was the story.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that was kind of an unfair shot at Queen, Queensbridge in the first place, which you know they were not claiming. Marley Marl um, wasn't claiming that that hip-hop came out of Queens they were just telling the story of how their exposure to hip-hop happened in Queensbridge and I'm blanking on his MC Steve MC Shan MC Shan of course Um, you know MC Shan was just telling the story of his of the Queensbridge projects and how hip-hop started there he wasn't trying to make grandiose claims but Karras one I mean he's an artist and a genius promoter and uh, you know that beef but the the interborough beefs are very very real and, and you know, Bronx versus Queens, Queens versus Brooklyn. And they talk about that in this movie. You know, Brooklyn and Queens had joined one another and they both had the big sound system. So there was some serious rivalry between the different DJs. And they tell stories of, of, DJs showing up at each other's parks and and you know sometimes bringing what the other side thought was just ridiculous equipment to bring to try to show people out and the other side rushing out to fast eddies and um, or crazy eddies and buying up equipment so to try to match it it's you know it's pretty funny but now that that rivalry is very real and it's also interesting I think it's DJ Hollywood who's bragging about I played in all the boroughs. And he only mentions four boroughs. Staten Island doesn't even get a mention. So, so until the Wu Tang Clan comes along in the '90s, Staten Island is is out there uh, alone and un, totally unheralded. Um, and the and the rest of these these boroughs are, are fussing amongst themselves. And even within the borough of Manhattan, you get the whole uptown, downtown, downtown thing with and midtown. You know. So, uh, and and as kid uh, kid talks, kid of kid and play talks about this movie. If you were in Queens you had your whole world there. There was no reason to go to Brooklyn and definitely no reason to go to the Bronx. And why on earth would you ever go to Harlem? You know? And so they kind of lay that out. Then, then they say, except for the music and they got to a point where DJs who were trying to, you know, make a go of it, had to go to other neighborhoods to play to other audiences, expand your base. And if you were a big fan, you'd start following those DJs around the city. So it actually had, um, And this is something we talked about the hip hop evolution series, you know, when, when, when Fab Five Freddy and others take hip hop from the Bronx to downtown Manhattan, you know, that's, that's this cross cultural cross pollination. So music, you know, it it can be the soundtrack for fights, but it can also bring um, some togetherness and peace elsewhere, elsewhere also. And so then they segue into DJ Hollywood. And like we said, DJ Hollywood, I think, is the guy who has the most to be bitter about because his rap is absolutely the cadences of pretty much all the early rappers. Am I wrong, Steve?
2: No. If you're feeling good with Hollywood, somebody say, oh, yeah. It's like every call and response record from the mid to late 70s to the early 80s is all patterned after DJ Hollywood.
1: yep and uh um i'm just loving your 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 rapping
2: uh and and i'm sorry it busts out of my pores because i'm a (laughs) hip-hop nerd i can't help myself
1: i love it that's cool um and and you know we've got la sunshine from the treacherous three who names hollywood as his his number one influence i would like to have seen more of those guys um i'd like to see somebody from the furious five uh, talking about it or Somebody from the Sugar Hill Gang, of course, they get into a whole different thing with with DJ Casanova and Grandmaster Caz. That whole, who who stole what from who. Yeah. But
2: the rest is not FLY because he <laughs> stole that whole routine.
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, and the, the interesting. Another thing about DJ Hollywood, and and this is very clear that these were the generation of DJs. And Fab Five Freddy says it in the in the movie. This was the generation of DJs that inspired people like Cool Herc and Bambada to want to be DJs because they showed it was a career path. And DJ Hollywood, somebody who played at the Apollo and had him. And that's the famous story to Apollo theater, you know, where Ray Charles and James Brown and Sam cook and, you know, Aretha Franklin and so many legends uh, performed in Harlem and DJ Hollywood claims he's the first person who had him dancing in the aisles that before that they would sit down and stay in their seats, but he had them all over and he got, put on the bill and they show a marquee from the seventies with the Delphonics who are a pretty serious um, harmony group and and had some right there in that uh, transition period from soul to disco in the early seventies. The Delphonics are pretty major thing. So for a DJ to be on the marquee with a group like the Delphonics shows you that um,
3: dude has established himself as a serious, legit artist And it's just too bad he fell between the cracks because uh, I think we mentioned it a little bit earlier. It's just uh pete dj jones even said this in in the documentary or in an interview i don't know i've been watching a whole whole bunch from him but he basically said this is the story of straight black disco which doesn't end up being told you 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 learn about the the disco disco in new york you're going to be hearing about david mancuso and you're going to be hearing about all of that and uh and if you're going to be hearing about hip-hop it starts basically you know in 75 with uh grandmaster flash doing his experiments in cool herc and so hollywood falls in between both of those spots and doesn't as somebody who you know was was rocking it from the 70s like right in that early part of the 70s that black hole part where there's nothing really coming up until 78 and then by 78 who can say who was first on anything so it's you know there's a lot of ownership issues and uh, and or, or at least a lot of archival issues as far as being able to stake your claim
1: absolutely and let's hear a little bit of dj hollywood this is hollywood's message so that was dj hollywood rapping hollywood's message and yeah it's just it's impossible to hear that stuff and then listen to the first rap records and not say you know and not go what is the difference here i mean there's there's that that's kind of always the case though i mean there's no genre has an absolute no, no genre started from nothing every genre drew on music that came before it and it's it's a marketing term and it's just the way people know history and and tell stories that we start you know a new chapter with at a beginning and you know for whatever reason the story of hip-hop starts with Cool Herc in 1973 and DJ Hollywood though always gets in there because by the time the MCs become a big factor in hip-hop Every one of that first generation of hip-hop MCs, they have to acknowledge DJ Hollywood because he was just absolutely the man at the time. And then from there, the movie kind of segues into an interesting thing where they talk about the kind of turntables they were using. Like even before you know techniques there was pioneer and before pioneer there were these weird little plastic turntables you could get at radio shack <laughs> and and some of the guys are, are talking about how they you know started out on those pretty much all belt drive which mean there's going to be lag and and stutter and that's you know where pj pete dj jones you know so that's where the scratching came from was just manually shoving the record so you could get it to the cue you wanted to And they were also stealing speakers off of stoplights, bullet tweeters, they called them, which gave it that hiss, that high, high powered, um, high frequency sound. And so it's, it's just cool. I, I love it that these kids are out there doing what they gotta do to make the sound that they hear in their heads and and bring it to the people. And it's not like they were all poor, like like the next group, Infinity Machine uh, from Queens, active from 74 to 78. These guys clearly had money because they talk about the guy's dad, um, Michael Goody's dad, just buying massive systems in a van to drive them around in. It, it, it's uh, always nice to see you know some of the bourgeois putting their money uh, where their ears are and and creating the stuff. And infinity machine. It's kind of hard for me to get a handle on it because they kind of come out short in two DJ battles that they that they talk about. And Steve, you got any other thoughts on the infinity machine?
2: I would say, yeah, they they kind of get treated as an afterthought both in the documentary in general and in hip-hop history in particular because they weren't winning those sound clash wars it it was often a case of who has the better style versus who has the louder system and the documentary even makes that point like if you tried to out loud cool dj Urk, you weren't going to win that battle no matter what
1: yeah, and and if you're going up against uh, King Charles in Brooklyn, same deal. Then then they go into Master D, who's another Brooklyn DJ. He plays Parks Projects, Block Parties. Uh, then he's at the Sumner Avenue Armory playing clubs, um, had the best bass in Brooklyn. And you know, by the late '70s, was doing the rapping and cutting and scratching stuff. And and I think it's interesting this this documentary doesn't give you the dates to know, like, when did Master D start? Was he post Cool Herc? Um, You know, and and clearly he's notable and and needs to be mentioned. Um, And he's somebody who changed his name to DJ Lance and kept on DJing into the modern era, into the 21st century, uh, you know, riding out all the changes in the business, but kind of went on the house direction rather than the hip hop direction.
2: Yeah, and by his own admission, in the documentary, it's like, well, I needed to be taken seriously. I, I had to be under my own name to be known as a musician and as a force in music.
1: Yeah, so um, kind of betwixt and between, but definitely a notable character. And then the next group they talk about are the Disco Twins from Astoria Projects. And Astoria is... Kind of between Queens and Brooklyn, I think it's usually defined as being in Queens, but all my New York listeners are going to be mad at me for getting that (laughs) wrong, but...
2: How is there going to be a white guy from the midwest talking about hip-hop
1: <laughs> oh, well you know we, we've uh, yeah I mean but the thing is on other shows with hip-hop uh, explosion we've had two black guys on on the show neither of whom is a hip-hop one of whom is a punk rocker and one is a music biz guy so it's not the color of the skin it's it's the knowledge and the passion um but obviously hip-hop is an African-American form and we got to defer to that but the disco twins, these guys seem very much like hip-hop. I mean, they've got DJ Smalls and DJ Sesame, um, and they're out there basically dancing behind the turntables. They're, they're scratching behind their back. They're running around uh, in circles. They have massive sound systems, you know, with multiple what they call Berthas, two 18-inch speakers in the 64-by-35-inch uh, cabinet. I mean, massively loud. Um, but they started out small in the early seventies with somebody's guitar amp that they borrowed and, and just some regular turntables and a stereo receiver. So it took them a while to get up to where they could throw down with somebody like King Charles at the parks. But, and, and, you know, they're one of the groups that they talk about beating the infinity machine in a battle. And, and then they get into this thing where it, it's kind of a golden era. Kid or kid in play talks about how in his borough, you could hear sometimes multiple sound systems play in it at different parks at the same time, and you could, yeah.
2: and he says if it gets quiet at night and you just listen, you could hear it echoing for blocks and blocks away
1: yeah and and it's um. You know, I'm sure that was a headache to a lot of the people who had to get to work in the morning and they got to <laughs> sleep and everything. But the police didn't seem to mind because you know all the bad guys, all the all the hyperactive teenagers are are corralled into one spot and they're dancing and having fun instead of jacking cars or anything else. So it's uh, one of the
3: things that's definitely. Uh... No longer like that. It I one 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 consistent theme that I see throughout the history of say underground music is is that as time goes on, uh, things just get progressively more and more illegal. Like back then, these park parties obviously, but, you know, illegal on some in some sense. They're stealing they're stealing sound and you know, ob- you probably need a permit and this and that. Uh, back then, didn't matter, and it was kind of the same in the early '90s. Nobody knew, or in the late '90s and early 2000s with rave, is that no, when the cops show up to these parties and there was like a thousand kids in a field or a thousand kids in a warehouse, they didn't even understand how they could Formulate in their minds how this is illegal because there, there just was a there there wasn't this sense of everything needing permission as everything was allowed unless it was illegal and they couldn't figure out how to write this stuff up so they just ended up letting it happen and uh, you know that's over now that's very much over now in New York and it's over now you know uh, it, it, in my scene you can't just set up a sound system somewhere in Montreal or or, or and and expect to to go without notice the cops will come and they'll shut you down just uh, without even explaining why it's legal because it's illegal on its face and that's kind of a a sad slide that i've seen in 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 culture north american culture i kind of miss that kind of wild west that we had uh going back that basically disappeared in the 2000s and onwards
2: absolutely I think the book does make one point that the documentary doesn't, and I want to bring that up when we talk about what's legal or illegal. The book points out that everybody thinks the disco scene was all drugs and orgies and that hip-hop was all clean and friendly and partying, but there was a lot of drug use and popping pills and getting high on angel dust and hip hop dance parties, too. So to say there weren't illegal things going on, there were definitely things going on. But sometimes those cops were, as was noted, just looking the other way because they were happy that everybody was confined in one place instead of being all out in the street. But there was very much illegal things going on
1: absolutely but there wasn't violent illegal things going on or at least yeah, not generally
2: yeah, some, it, some, so, some sometimes bit, but, violent things uh like we we uh I think in the documentary it was mentioned, if not in the book, how sometimes in the club you'd get somebody shot and then everybody would go outside and they would wait until the body was taken out so they could go back in and continue partying.
3: (laughs) That's the kind of illegality or or the kind of lawlessness that you don't, uh, that's very Wild West. Uh, You don't, you just don't see that anymore. It's too authoritarian. Uh, Just, just the idea of illegal things going on now sometimes seems to be enough to bring the hammer down and shut the party down and, and, and end it.
1: Yeah, and the the key thing is the 70s was the beginning of the war on drugs. Nixon and Governor Rockefeller in New York had started that stuff, but it wasn't until Reagan came along in the 80s that it really you know we well, had federal task forces that some of the people in the documentary mentioned it was just the guys from the local precinct so you didn't have the dea you didn't have the task forces you didn't have the helicopters and all this sort of over policing that's become uh the norm and standard today but let's hear one more song this is uh king tim the third personality jock by the fatback band and this is i think this preceded uh sugar hill gang's rapper's delight am i correct on that steve
2: yeah, actually, it got shipped to stores one week before Rapper's Delight.
1: All right, so this is the first hip-hop record.
2: Here we go. You just clap your
4: hands and you stomp your feet cause you listen to the sound of the show you had I'm the king, the G-I-M, King James III, and I am him. Just me, Fat Fat, and the crew, we doing it all for you. We're strong as an ox and told as a tree. We can rock it so viciously. We throw the hides and your eyes the bass your face. with are the funk machines that rock the human rage Skate down boogie shot. Come on girl let's do the rock. Slam dunk.
1: That's King Tim 3, personality jock from the Fatback band, the first rap record. And I think when you listen to it, that sounds to me much more like Frankie Crocker over a disco beat. Rapper's Delight, even though it's The same thing, it's somebody imitating DJ Hollywood or Grandmaster Kaz over a band playing a disco song. That feels like something different. I think the key with Rapper's Delight is it's telling you it's something different and and really drawing attention to itself. Whereas King Tim is more kind of a novelty, maybe. I don't know. Thoughts on that record, Steve?
2: Well, even if you look at the history of the record, they – basically brought in a kid and said, hey kid, rap over this record because rapping is cool. They didn't really plan for it being a hit. It was the B side of the single. And it took off in a way that they couldn't have expected. They were just bringing somebody in to fill some time and kill some time. And like you just said, Rapper's Delight was a very much more purposeful, in-your-face creation. Even if it was a completely engineered creation by Sylvia Robinson that's been mythologized and created into something that it really wasn't. It was a manufactured rap group but it still gets more of the credit for being a purposeful rap.
1: Yeah. And was a big hit and, and, you know, really impacted the world. And the last thing for the movie that we need to cover is that they talk about some of the promoters. They talk about Jeff Harris, who was famous for promoting multiple DJs and bands groups like double exposure who had a big disco hit were under the umbrella. So DJs are becoming performance artists in this era that's uh, so what we'll talk about M. Morton Hall. He's on camera in this and claims he started uh, promoting shows in 1959. So he goes way, way back into the doo-wop era, and you know booked Grandmaster Flowers in in the 60s. He's the guy who brags about you know booking shows in all four boroughs. So sorry Staten Island. And again, you know he's the guy who promoted big disco bands as well as DJs, Cool and the Gang and others. Um, so it's a period of innovation and of increasing acceptance of DJs as performers and you know, but are I, they getting paid? <laughs> I, I assume so. I, I would assume, you know, if they're working and they've got to pay for those sound systems. So, yeah, I, I bet they're getting paid, probably not getting paid as much as they'd like to. But,
3: but that'd be an interesting question. I'd like <laughs> to find out.
2: Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> that's that's why I started laughing earlier when you talked about the coffin, because I remember having to haul a coffin and speakers to a gig when I was a radio DJ in college. And I didn't get paid enough for loading all that equipment myself. I wish I'd had a roadie back then.
1: <laughs> yeah and if you played in punk rock in the early 90s oh my god you never got paid it was a total lot everything was a loss leader because you know so so it's fun to talk about music that was actually popular if you were involved in an unpopular scene like i was That that you know this is stuff that drew a crowd this was music that people came out and danced to that people would dance to it for free at at a park. So I assume, yeah, if you're playing a park, you're not getting paid, but by the time you move into a club or by the time you've got a promoter, by the time you're doing the Audubon ballroom in Harlem, a massive theater, you know, where Malcolm X was assassinated, that's a big deal. If you're DJ Hollywood playing at the Apollo, you know you're getting paid. And if you're Frankie Crocker on the biggest radio station in town, definitely getting paid. So we'll continue our discussion of hip hop with Steve June and Ryan Harkness. Um, next week, it'll be just me and Ryan, because we hadn't thought to invite Steve on for the Hip Hop Roots discussion, which we already taped. And then the week after that, we'll talk about the explosion of hip hop and as we continue our discussion of Last Night at DJ Saved My Life by the, the History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And today we were talking about Founding Fathers of Hip Hop, an undersung documentary about some undersung guys who definitely deserve the shout out. So thanks, guys.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with a look at the roots of hip-hop in the Bronx. Let it roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheompodcasts.com. Last Night at DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.